Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short-term rentals and long-term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short-term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Good morning out there, all you short-term shoppers. It's Avery Carl, and I wanted to give you guys a quick reminder about something that I don't think I've done a good enough job of keeping you aware of. So I get a lot of emails from y'all every week, and I love getting emails from you, by the way. I love talking to our listeners, and a lot of them are asking for real estate agent recommendations in different markets, and what I don't think I've done a good job of is making sure that you guys are aware that the short-term show is actually a subsidiary of the short-term shop which is the largest short-term rental specific real estate team brokered by EXP. I have to say that or I get in trouble in the country. So we have offices in 12 of the top short-term rental markets in the country. And we are here to help you purchase your first, second, third, or 10th short-term rental. And if you buy with us in any of those markets, we have a whole back-end training program where we will teach you everything you need to know about managing your short-term rental remotely. Everything from setting up your Airbnb and VRBO listings to teaching you how to use all the property management software that you'll need, all the way down to helping you source your local boots on the ground like cleaners and handymen. And we have some awesome Facebook support communities that we want you guys to be a part of where we all share ideas and information about managing our short-term rental, which short-term rentals, which markets are the best, uh, what we're doing next, and all of that really fun stuff. So if you want to be a part of the short-term shop community, if you want to buy a house with us, we really want to help you guys. So head on over to the shorttermshop.com and click schedule a consultation. We'll see you there. Welcome back, short-term shoppers. Today, we are talking about short-term rental financing, and we have my business partner, the CEO and founder of The Mortgage Shop and short-term rental owner, Brenna Carls here. Hey, Brenna. How's it going? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Carls, not Carl. We are not related. Not related. Names. <laughs> how's it going? Pretty good. Living the dream. Yeah, same here. Well, tell, us, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Um, so my name is Britta and, um, I got into the financing business after I built my own home. So strangely enough, I fell in love with the process, which sounds really weird and nerdy. Yeah. Um, super weird. Yeah. Really weird. <laughs> and so I fell in love with the process, you know, then the, the big wildfires happened in, uh, was it 2016? And I just felt called to go in it full force full time to help you know these areas and i found myself specializing in the short-term rental markets because that's what i um knew you know my whole life is the short-term rental markets and so that's how i started to create my business from there um you know in the smoky mountains and then the panhandle uh alabama you know places like that and i did my research and visited all the places that we you know are licensed in or getting licensed in and basically researching all the areas that are going to cash flow really well and i wanted to create a mortgage company that you know had really good products because most of the products out there for investors just sucked and i was like there's got to be a better way i know that if i can do some digging and, and work really hard I, you know i've worked really hard to build my business let me see if i can work really hard to try to find better products for these people 
and you know i did and then <laughs> i didn't realize that there was like this niche that hasn't been filled yet um on the east coast especially of a mortgage company just specializing you know in short-term rentals long-term rentals and vacation homes and the business just exploded which is amazing and so our primary focus still and will always be you know to try to have the products for these customers getting into investment and helping them uh, build generational wealth and before that i was much cooler um before I, we all? <laughs> yeah. I was much cooler than i am now after i uh, before i got in the mortgage business so i used to you know sing for my supper as they say i was a performer here in in town and where's town Sevierville, smoky mountain area um pigeon forge area you know and so i started that in about 2011 and then dolly herself picked me up as one of her background singers you know when she was in town and you know it went from there and then i retired <laughs> at the ripe old age of what is it 26 and now i uh, own my own mortgage company yeah we were all much cooler before i don't <laughs> think any of us went i'm gonna grow up and get into real estate yeah <laughs> Uh, but then when you grow up and you're working a job that you hate, you're like, oh, yeah, real estate. Yes, this yeah. is the thing. So it comes full circle. So anyway, I want to talk. I've got a lot I want to talk about. But uh, especially let's start with what's happening now. So it is April 2022. Interest rates are going up. Let's talk about that because I know a lot of people are nervous about it. What does that mean for us as investors? Uh, what do you think? What, what do you see happening in the next few months? I, I personally think that the interest rate hike is good because, you know, when the when COVID hit, the interest rates plummeted because they thought everybody was going to lose their jobs. They couldn't have properties, you know, or, or buy things. So the rate at which these banks were borrowing money was like literal cents to the dollar. And um, and so it, interest rates, you know, plummeted. And then what they found out is these people could work from home from their laptops. Then these businesses found out there was a lot less overhead if they let their um, employees continue to work from home. And so everybody and their mom started purchasing all these properties and then they aren't making as much money. You know, the country, you know, isn't making physically making money like they used to. And therefore, if those interest rates, you know, two years ago were really low, well, all the money, you know, starts to be borrowed up, basically. They can't make it fast enough for the people that were borrowing it. So that's a big reason behind the Fed increasing these interest rates. Um, and the only difference is between, you know, now and COVID, yeah, the interest rates are a lot lower. But if you look at pre-COVID, so a lot of people just got into this, you know, investing in real estate within the last two years. And what they don't realize is before COVID, um, the interest rates were comparable, almost exactly the same as they are now. You know, investment property was like five and a half, five point six two five. Now we're seeing up to a six percent rate on those. Um, but the thing is, we try to educate the clients, right? It's not just about the interest rate. Don't look at the interest rate. Work the numbers and see if it works for you, and see if you still cash flow. Which ninety eight percent of our clients are still going to cash flow because, again. I, you know, specialize in the areas that are cash flowing really well. Um, and I've been telling everybody it's just going to separate the sheep, sheeps from the wolves um, because you do have to do a little bit of homework and see if that deal works for you, you know, as opposed to just jumping in and not knowing what you're doing. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think that uh, even outside of the investing space, I think when COVID hit, a lot of people were maybe living in small apartments, but are now working from home. They're like, oh, wait a minute. I need, if I'm going to be working from home all the time, especially if they're married and have families, like they need their own space to be able to work. And so a lot of people were buying primary homes that weren't previously just because they needed more space to be able to work from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like the interest rates are even, they're still historically low. They're not as low as they were last year. That was like ridiculously low, but they're still very low uh, compared to, you know, other times. So uh, I think you just really have to still do your due diligence, run your numbers, make sure they work. And, um, but I have several, several that are like a five and a half, 6% interest rate from a few years ago. Granted, they were at lower purchase prices. I will make that concession, but uh, I really, it's hard to say, and I'm not going to pretend to be an economist because I made a C in economics at UT, but it does seem like inflation is still outpacing any potential interest rate hikes. So who knows what's going to happen? I'm not going to pretend to know what's going to happen, but it is interesting to get other people's perspective on that. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk about some other, some, the actual financing of short-term rentals. So a lot of people use the 10% down vacation home. I've used it uh, on my first one uh, in Tennessee. I actually use it on a property in Florida, both of which I was using two weeks a year. Uh, I, when I got a second one in Tennessee, I actually wrote a letter to the underwriters and said, hey, we already have this other one that we want to convert to a rental. Are we allowed to do that and get this type of loan? And uh, and we were told yes. So I want to make sure that a lot of listeners out there are, if you're using that loan, that you're using it the right way and that you're not committing mortgage fraud. Because I think there's a lot of misconception out there that vacation home loans are for rentals when they're actually for vacation homes. So what's your perspective on that? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's exactly right. So a second home loan or vacation home loan is the same thing. So what is a second home? It's a place that you intend to visit, you know, when you are vacationing. And so I tell, you know, our clients or prospective people that are asking about that product, you know, if you intend, if your intention is to actually vacation there, you know, like you said, two weeks out of the year, I just say 15 days to cover all bases, you know, um, and then it doesn't have to be consecutive. You can go there separate days, you know, three days for, you know, the long weekend or a weekend, you know, Memorial Day weekend, whatever you want to do. Um, and then you can rent it out when you aren't there. But what I see a lot of people do is they're like, OK, well, I want to get with my partner and put it in an LLC, but I want it to be a vacation home. I'm like, no, that's not a vacation home. That's a business venture. And so you just have to ask yourself, what is your primary reason for this property? Yes, you can rent it out when you are not there, which is great. But, you know, use that product like it's supposed to be used um, just because you do sign that FBI occupancy certification saying, you know, in your loan disclosures, I don't know if people probably don't even read the loan disclosures anymore because they're so long, but there is a occupancy certification in there that um, says, you know, you do intend to make this primarily a second home, et cetera. And so just make sure, you know, as I tell people that you are doing it for the right reasons and not the wrong reasons. Yeah. That's something that's, that makes me super nervous as I've seen the short-term rental industry grow is that I've seen people like starting funds with 
they're basically making commercial purchases with each individual member doing a 10% down vacation home loan and purchasing it for the fund and doing these equity splits and stuff. And I'm like, y'all, I don't think, I think that's illegal. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's mortgage fraud. So y'all pay attention. Anyway, I just wanted to hit on that because I know that's a big one that a lot of people want to use, but I want to make sure that you guys that are listening, get as much value out of this as possible. And to make sure that you guys are uh, when you're going to use that type of loan that you are 100% like upfront and honest with your loan officer or whoever, your bank, credit union, about what you're going to use it for. Because I, I just don't, it just, it's been making me nervous the past couple of years when I've started seeing things like that happen. Yeah. And people just getting into it, you know, if you're you wanting to visit the area, you know, a second home loan would be good for you to vacation because if you do rent it out on the side, it kind of can get your feet wet into the investing world. But you also will know that area. Why? Because you vacation there. So you'll be able to personalize it. Right. You'll be able to say, you know, my favorite tra hiking trail here, um, you know, is Grotto Falls or my favorite restaurant, etc. And just kind of be personable about it. And then that way. You're still vacationing and enjoying your home, but you're trying to see if investing is really for you on the side when you aren't occupying it. Um, and so I think it's kind of like a win-win for the people that actually want to vacation there um, first and foremost. I agree with that 100%. So let's move on to some other types of financing. So what do you think, I guess the second most popular type of financing that I hear about is DSCR loans. So can you tell me the difference between a conventional loan and a DSCR loan? Yeah. So a DSCR loan or the, the abbreviation DSCR equals debt service coverage ratio, that doesn't go off your personal income or debt at all. That just goes off of the property you're purchasing's proposed monthly rental income and the proposed monthly mortgage payment. So usually you'll see you want a debt service coverage ratio of 1-1, which means if your mortgage payment per month is $3,000, you want to see that average monthly proposed rental income being $3,000 or more. And that's literally it all it goes off of. And then conventional does go off of your personal debt and your personal income. I see a lot of people, you know, they see the new product and they feel like they need to go get it. DSER is awesome if you know you're trying to expand as quickly as possible. But if you do have those conventional loans, you know, look to see if you can qualify for those first because they do have better terms. You know, they don't have any prepayment penalties. Most of your DSCR loans um, have prepayment penalties. Like we do have the option to not, you know, uh, a loan that doesn't have the prepayment penalty on the DSCR, but most of them do have that five-year prepayment penalty. The interest rates are going to be higher. Um, because it's literally not qualifying you off of anything except your credit score and the assets to show, you know, the 20% down payment plus closing costs. So those are the difference. Okay. So a conventional loan does go off your own personal debt to income ratio. Can I close that in an LLC or does it have to be in my personal name? Sometimes some lenders will allow you to do that. It's not really though. It's, you're putting LLC basically on title. You're still the personal guarantor for it. So your name is on it and your LLC is on it. Um, now you can quick claim it to an LLC because an LLC is an extension of you and it wouldn't trigger that due on sale clause. That due on sale clause was put in place because of straw buyers in 2007 and eight and banks had to protect themselves and put that clause in there. Um, so most of the time you'll be closing in your personal name. You're going to be the personal guarantor anyway, and then you can have your LLC on title or quit claim it to 
title. You can close LLC only with a DSCR loan, but again, you still are personally guaranteeing it because we do have to run your credit and look at your assets and all of that stuff. Okay. So DSCR, you can close in an LLC. DSCR is not conventional. So back to the conventional loan. Can you count rental history on properties that on short-term rentals that I already have towards my DTI on a conventional loan? Yeah. So if you have, you know, rental property, short-term rentals, they are filed on what's called the Schedule E, which is a form on your personal tax return. And that form is for rental income. It can be used for oil royalties and stuff like that. But the main focus is rental income, right? And so once you have that um, rental income for, let's say, you know, you had it for 2021, your taxes are about to be filed, you get that copy of your tax returns, then it's going to show your rental income on those short-term rental properties on your Schedule E. And then we'll be able to use that to offset your current mortgage payments that you have on those properties. Now, the cool thing is if there is a long-term rental, let's say you just got, you know, you closed on one last month and you have a lease agreement on it. Well, you don't have to wait that full year to, you know, report on your tax return to use that income. We can use that lease agreement, 75% of that um, monthly lease amount. Okay. So if I'm buying a short term like tomorrow, so say I buy my first short term tomorrow and I'm going to buy my second one the end of the summer. So three or four months. And I've got three or four months worth of rental history to show on my first one when I go to close on my second one. Are you able to use that rental history from that year or do you have to wait until it's next year when it's actually filed on my taxes to be able to count that rental history towards my DTI? You have to wait for it to be filed on your taxes for short term rental. However, the one that you're talking about, you're buying another one, right? You can use proposed rental income on that subject property that you're purchasing to offset that monthly principal interest taxes, insurance and HOA fees applicable. Um, the only thing you need to have for that to qualify is having a, a housing payment for your primary residence. So you can rent that's a, you know, a housing expense. You can own your property, you know, mortgage, pay taxes, insurance on it. That's a housing expense. If you live rent free, then you wouldn't be able to use that proposed rental income to offset that mortgage payment. But most people, you know, pay rent or have some sort of an expense for their primary residence. So usually people can use that proposed rental income on that subject property to offset that payment so they can qualify for more. Okay, awesome. And I think that you made a really good point earlier too, that a lot of people, uh, they'll listen to like a lot of podcasts, which is great, like listening to podcasts, reading books, educating yourself as much as possible. And they'll read about all these very advanced financing strategies, like um, you know, getting hard money or getting bridge loans or all these things that if you're just going to go buy a house that you don't actually need, unless it's a very specific set of circumstances. So if you are able to get a conventional loan on a property, like if you're buying something that is a little bit, you know, maybe just a small rehab or pretty turnkey, you don't have to go get some crazy loan. You can go, if you can get conventional financing on something, if you have conventional financing available, always get the conventional because the terms are always going to be the best on conventional Fannie Freddie products. You, unless you've got like some very special specific, like high net worth wealth advisor at some of those bigger um, investment banks that they might have something better, but I'm just talking about like 
the what's available to the general public. Uh, conventional loans have the the best terms. Typically, I'm sure somebody's going to email me and tell me I'm wrong. I, I'd love to be wrong. Like send me whatever you have, but uh, most of the time, conventional is going to be the cheapest and easiest loan to get. So I want to just make sure everybody takes away from that. Like you don't have to do these big, crazy, advanced strategies when the easier ones are just right there. I think a lot of people hear other people say, you know, I'm doing this burr fix and flip, uh, you know, insert 1700 other different real estate investing terms at one time and think that in order to be successful, they have to go that crazy too. When really at the end of the day, you're just buying a house and renting it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, I think that's part of that analysis para paralysis. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, you know, people think it is complicated because how can you be successful at something and, and make this lucrative of money if it's not complicated, right? That's what people's mindset is. But if you just educate yourself, like normal podcasts like this, you know, there's simple loans out there and just start out with an open mind and, and you know, try to do it simple at first you'll find a much more easier process. I feel like, you know, going forward as opposed to saying, okay, I need to have this one because I want to renovate and blah, blah, blah. You know, when there's HELOCs out there that you can refinance, you know, always try to look for the simplest product first, and then you can expand your knowledge as you grow your portfolio. I agree with that. And there is a time and place for the big complicated stuff, but if you don't have to, then don't. And um, I kind of wanted to tie that back into the DSCR loans. So DSCR loans, they're not conventional. They're a portfolio product. But what I see sometimes is that when people go to use a DSCR, they're mad that the interest rate isn't as low as on a conventional, uh, especially on those the lower down payment, like the 15% down ones. Well, no, of course it's not as low because they're giving you a loan based on basically nothing, like based yeah. on the fact that they're on the premise that you are going to manage it well enough that it's going to make enough money to cover the mortgage payment. So yeah, of course the, of course the rent, the, uh, I almost said the rental history, of course the interest rates higher because the loan is riskier for the bank. So talk about that and why why conventionals are lower and why other types of loans might be more expensive. Yeah. So DSCR, I see a lot. They're like, you know, my interest rates at 6%, you know, that's, that's way too high. What's going on? I'm like, well, <laughs> this loan product is the closest thing that we had to a subprime loan back in, you know, the 2007, 2008. And we know, we all know how well that went, you know, that crashed a lot of mortgage companies, a lot of borrowers went into foreclosure for those loans. And so it's protecting the borrower, but it's also protecting the lender's asset in that loan. And so if they're not qualifying, like think about it this way. If somebody's asking you personally, can I borrow $800,000, but I don't want you to look at my income or debt. This property is proposed to make, you know, this much per year, but don't look at anything else. You know, how, how much would you be like, okay, here you go. Here's a check for $800,000, you know? So it is a little riskier. So how do they do that? They do the five-year prepayment penalty most of the time. Um, there is that caveat on that one product. And then they do the higher interest rate because that's where they're going to make their interest because they are taking more of a risk lending you this money than, the, than your conventional loan. Conventional loans are lower because it is going off of your personal debt and your personal income. You know, they have your credit bureaus, all three looking at, you know, the history for the last 10 years. 
that you've done, they're looking at your assets, they're looking at large deposits, they're looking at your income for the last two years and current. So it's it's less of a liability for them because they see, you know, if you've been good thus far with your mortgage payments and such, nine times out of 10, you're going to be good. And, you know, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the ones that decide, are the deciding factor on that. And if they are good, then guess what? That lender can sell it on the wholesale market, you know, the secondary market um, after it closes. So if, you know, Fannie Mae's like, yeah, we're good. Then the lender's like, cool, my hands are washed of it. I'm selling this and making the money off of it that we need to make off of it. So that's why it's less of a risk for the conventional loan. Gotcha. And let's talk a minute about discount points, because as the interest rates are going up, I'm hearing a lot more about, well, this is the rate, but with two points. So for the folks out there who are new to this, what's a point? So one point is just 1% of the loan amount, not purchase price of the loan amount. So, uh, you know, when everybody was purchasing uh, properties at the really low interest rates for the, the COVID interest rates, as I call them, uh, Fannie Mae was like, hold up, we want to have our cake and eat it too, which Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac can. Uh, so they were like, we're going to put in place LLPAs or loan level pricing adjustments for these second homes and investment properties to try to get more money, you know, on our end, because like, the money is cheap and they're, you know, purchasing. We want to have a back, you know, a backing for us as well as we're, you know, buying these loans off of people. So they put in place loan level pricing adjustments, which just means a higher charge for the actual interest rate. It doesn't mean the interest rate went up. Um, it could have gone up, you know, by a quarter of a point or 0.375 when they first came out. But most of the time it's concerning the cost for the interest rate that you are getting. So one point, if, you know, somebody says, you know, today's interest rates at five and a half with 1.5 points, that means one and a half percent times the loan amount. Um, and so that's very normal. Like you're not going to see par interest rates without points now um, where we're at because Fannie Mae imp imposed those LLPAs and now the Fed has in increased rates. So the cost for that interest rate is higher for the borrower. So that's what a, a point is. And you say discount point when somebody, you know, that's new to this, you know, it's not the borrower's job to know how to read a loan estimate. Right. I mean, they can read the normal numbers of what their taxes and insurance and mortgage payment are going to be. But when they see the word discount points, what does that seem like? That seems like they're getting a discount on their rate, which it's not. It's a cost for the rate. So keep that in mind. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So when you're shopping for a loan and you're calling a bunch of different banks and mortgage brokers and do they have to tell you that so if i'm calling a bunch of banks and one bank has like a or a mortgage broker has a a much lower interest rate than others do they have to tell me on the phone that that i'm paying points to get that rate or would that be something that i would see only on a written statement um ethical lenders would tell you that on the phone um, but a loan estimate has to say what you're paying for that rate in points, but it also has to say um, if any charges to the broker, like broker commission, it has to say that as well. Um, if it doesn't have a line item for it, then nine times out of 10 is just what the rate is costing. And then the lender is getting paid on the back end from the interest rate. But I want people to be wary. And again, 
education, educate yourself, you know, Google the average interest rates for conventional investment, Google the average interest rates for jumbo second home, something like that. So, you know, if you come across an interest rate that's too good to be true, it probably is because when interest rates get higher, the sneaky people come out of the closet and the woodworks and they want to try to get as much money or, you know, income coming in as they can, as quickly as they can, because they feel like they, one, don't have enough business in the first place. Two, interest rates are increasing. So they're like, we need to get it as fast as we can until it goes up where we're not going to have any more business. So what they do is try to fool the borrower, basically. It's a, you know, a bait and switch ta tactic, which is illegal. Um, but I was Florida, you know, a loan estimate last week I saw one of my loan originators came to me and was like, hey, can you check this? It just it just doesn't seem right. And it was for a one million fifteen thousand dollar purchase price. Investment only at four point seven five percent with only one point for that rate. And I was like, are you sure it's not a primary residence? And he was like, no, it's investment. You know, they confirmed it in an email. And so I started looking at it and at the top, it's like, if this isn't your actual loan estimate, which all documents say until you lock in, you know, your interest rate and you get that official loan estimate. But it said, you know, it didn't have any of the title company fees on there. It didn't have, it just showed that one point for the interest rate. But then it said in bold on the other side, it said broker commission to be paid at closing. All right. Well, what's that broker commission? Like, that you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. And so I was just like, that that is insane because you're supposed to list out every single, you know, line item on that loan estimate. And the borrower, it literally showed the borrower coming to closing with $23,000 on a $1,015,000 purchase price investment property. And so just be cautious, read. If you have a question about a loan estimate, you know, reach out to your loan originator or me or whoever you need to reach out to and say, what does this mean? Can you explain it to me? Because you want to be educated because you don't want to get that bait and switch tactic where you're two weeks from closing and then they send you that actual loan estimate and you're, you find out you're paying that broker commission of like $20,000 on top of all the other points and fees that you're paying. But then you're kind of stuck, right? Because you're like, okay, well, I still qualify. So either I lose my earnest money or I pay this amount and close the loan. So that's why it's unethical. And that's a, some of these people are coming out of the woodworks and they're starting to do that. So I just tell people to educate themselves, research the average interest rates and all of that. So as with anything, you're just making sure that you're reading everything thoroughly. And if anything sounds like wildly, wildly better than anything else conventional wise anyway, then you definitely need to take a harder look at that. Yeah, I mean, it's like any industry, right? Let's look at pizza joints or let's look at fast food restaurants. And then you go to title companies. All of their, you know, menu items are priced at the same, like nobody's astronomically higher than the other fast food restaurant or title companies. You're going to, if you compare title companies, nobody's going to be astronomically higher than the other title company because they all want to be competitive. So they all, all these lenders continuously study the market every single day to make sure that they are even and then like they're all competing against each other. Right. So they're all going to be on the same playing field. And if you find, you know, a, a community bank or a community, you know, the small boutique brokerage somewhere random and they're like, oh, we can get you a 4.75 and, you know, on that investment only, even every, even though everybody else and their mom is charging, you know, a five and a half to six percent interest rate, we can do four point seven five. 
Well, your first thought would be like, cool, let's do it. But being an educated buyer is like, why? Why is it that low? Then if you're using somebody like, you know, let's say this lender, you know, was in Colorado and they were going to get a loan on the here at a cabin here in the Smoky Mountains. And so I said, you know, ask them how many deals they've done in Tennessee. And if they say, oh, a lot, you know, I'd be like, okay, who are your favorite realtors that you work with there? And then they're not going to be able to answer your question because they just lied to you because they don't do a lot of business because if they were, they would have had a presence in this state already. Um, so just do your due diligence and ask up front because again, you just want to be as educated as you possibly can about the investment that you're about to make. And I also want to make one clarifying statement. So it is possible like it, small local credit unions and small banks that are really local, that are very relationship based. It's in, we're talking, what we're talking about right now is comparing conventional loans to each other. So portfolio and commercial products are going to be different. So if you've got a bank that you have, like I've got a bank here in town that I have a really great relationship with, we bank with them, we buy a lot of things with them and we do have great, a, better interest rates than what you will see on um, regular conventional stuff because of that relationship. So we're not saying that that better deals don't exist elsewhere of other types. We're talking about strictly conventional right now. Um, so, all right, what else, what other questions do I have for you? Uh, I think, I guess my, I'm trying to think like a new, a new buyer and like, it's really hard because we have this conversation like every day. So I'm trying to uh, not talk to you like I, we have this conversation every day. So um, bank statement loans, let's talk about those. So those are back. What's a bank statement loan? So bank statement loan is basically another way that self-employed borrowers can get financed. Um, you know, if they took a big loss for some reason in last year's tax return, you know, if they claim too much because the IRS will not let you have your cake and eat it too. Um, you can, you know, if you claim a lot on your tax returns and guess what, your income is going to not look as good. If you took a significant decrease last year, you know, because your business suffered from whatever, a COVID, if a hurricane affected your business, whatever it is, then this option would be for you. Bank statement loan, you look at your business bank statements for 12 to 24 months. You know, the reason I say that is 24 months does have a little bit better pricing. So, you know, whichever you prefer, but let's just say 12 months. We look at the uh, deposits for the full 12 months. We take that and multiply it by the expense ratio, which is normally 50%. If your CPA says it's lower then they can send a letter in and say it's lower. Um, but let's just say, you know, we averaged it out and it showed $10,000 per month. And we take that, multiply it by the expense ratio, 50%. And so we get $5,000. Then we look at your percentage of ownership of that business. So let's just say you own it 100%, then your monthly income would be that $5,000. And then we just use that like normal income, like we just calculated your income. And then we look at your personal debt and go forward with the loan as it like as it would be as a conventional loan. OK, so that type of loan is typically for self-employed borrowers. That would be really the only reason you need to do that kind. If you if you have a W-2, you can just do a regular. Right. OK, so. Going back through the types of loans for short term rentals, we have. Conventional. So what is the lowest down payment you can make on a conventional investment loan? Investment, 15% um, yeah. down for investment only. 
and that's up to that you know new 2022 conforming loan limit of 647,200. 647,200 is the loan amount or is the purchase price? The loan amount. So the purchase price is going to be higher. So you just take 85% divided by, you know, the loan amount and you would get your purchase price, which is what, 7, 7, 11, 7, 15, something like that price range. Okay. So I, think a lot of people, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a conventional investment only product that you can put down less than 20%. So if you're somebody who's more concerned with putting less down than anything else, uh, as long as it's under that conforming loan limit, meaning it's not a jumbo loan, then you can put down 15% on an investment. Yes. So that's that's a good a good thing to do if you're just getting into it and you're still in that conforming loan stage um, product. Okay. So we have conventional and then that 10% down vacation home loan is part of that, uh, which again, make sure you guys are not committing mortgage fraud and you're being super honest and upfront with whatever lender you're using about that. Some of y'all are making me nervous. Um, <laughs> and then we have DSCR, which is a portfolio product. So it is not conventional. And then there's more, the local credit unions and local banks typically will have a fully commercial product depending on where you are. Sometimes those are a little bit, uh, more difficult for short-term rental specific, although they're out there and they exist. Uh, but commercials cut works kind of similar to that DSCR. It's based more on what the property will make than um, your debt to income. So uh, there are lots of other creative financing options, but we wanted to kind of just hit on the main ones for those of you who might be newer to the short-term rental world to kind of explain some things. So, I do want to say um, when you said conventional, a lot of people think that it is just up to that 647.2. We do have that 10, you know, 0.01%. They when it becomes jumbo, it becomes 10.01% instead of 10% down up to a two million dollar loan amount for that second home, or you know, 20% down investment only up to that two million dollar loan amount. And people are like, well, that's jumbo. Like we don't want to get into jumbo. And I say, why? And they say, well, the terms are not as good. And you know, there might be a prepayment penalty. That's not true at all. So jumbo might not be the conforming loan limit, but it is going off of that Fannie Mae guideline. And we do run, you know, a qualified mortgage test. So it is under that same umbrella. So you can get, you know, your conventional conforming loan and it still be jumbo. That's good to know, because I think a lot of a lot of markets now, almost everything purchase price wise is going to be a jumbo. Which yeah, pretty, pretty much. much. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brenna, for coming on. Uh, we may have you again later, depending on the feedback of this show, if people want a part two or and to go into more detail or more uh, higher experience level. And this was just kind of an overview for everyone because we haven't had a lending only show yet. So we're down to the last three questions of the show that we ask everyone. So what advice would you give 20-year-old Brenna? That's the first one. <laughs> Oh, gosh, not to uh, dye my hair in those long streaks of blonde. And um, but re regarding investing, um, you know, I should, you know, save money, you know, save it on the side to try to put a down payment down. Don't keep saying, well, I don't have enough down payment for this price range. So I'm going to wait because inflation is a real thing, guys. Like money is going to continue to increase. These properties are going to continue to increase. And so if you really want to get your feet wet and get into it, just just look in the property price range that you have that down payment and closing costs for. You can get gift funds, you know, 
on a second home loan or a primary residence to help you out. Look into all of those options uh, because I would have definitely invested sooner if I'd listened to my older self. Well, that is actually a question that I want to go back to. So gift funds. So say I want to I want to buy an investment property and my parents are giving me half the down payment. I want to get a conventional investment loan. Can I do that? Can I use those funds? So no. So you can't use gift funds towards an investment property, but you can use gift funds towards your primary residence or a second home loan. You just have to have at least 5% of your own funds first, and then you can get the rest from a family member. Family member is, again, any family member, your spouse or your fiance. What about DSCR? Can someone give me money for my down payment for that? They can, but they don't usually source large deposits on DSCRs. So there is that. Okay. So you could do that on a DSCR then? Yeah. All right. That opens up some partnership opportunities, I think, for people. And I think that uh, we could probably have a part two on all that. But anyway, second to last, I'm trying not to make people listen to us talk for three hours straight. Um, Second to last question, what advice would you give to a new investor getting started today? Educate yourself, but don't overanalyze things to where you have so many questions and you're confused because you're you're looking at these platforms already to put your Airbnb up or something, but you don't even have a property yet. You know, ask questions of, you know, your realtor, ask your loan originator to show you, you know, normal interest rate products and what that cost would be for you per month. And if it still makes sense to you, educate yourself on interest rates. Do not let people pressure you into buying a property. You know, I see lenders saying, oh, second home loans are going away. Um, you know, interest rates are going to go higher. You need to purchase like right now. To me, that's just them trying to pad their pockets sooner. So make sure it is an investment that you are comfortable with, but also don't hold yourself back by just analyzing everything too much and therefore hurting your investment strategies as opposed to helping it. Another great answer. And just like I did on the last one, I found another note that is unrelated to this that I meant to cover. So we're going to cover that really quick. Uh, I wanted to talk about non-warrantable condos. I don't know how I, how I missed that note earlier, but let's talk about non-warrantable condos. So um, what is a non-warrantable condo and where are you more likely to find non-warrantable versus warrantable condos market-wise? So non-warrantable condos are totally different than condo tells because that's what people think. They hear non-warrantable and they're like, oh, it's a condo tell. No, it's not. Non-warrantable in our markets, in the vacation markets and the investment markets that we are in um, or you're looking in, nine times out of 10, the reason why it's a non-warrantable condo is because there are more second home units and investment units than there are primary residence units. And that's mainly the main reason. There are other reasons a condo can't be non-warrantable such as, you know, the HOA isn't in control of the unit owners or there was a hurricane and they're rebuilding it currently or they're in current litigation um, that somebody is filing suit against the HOA for a condo. But normally it's just because there are more second home units and investment units. Um, a condo tell is what it sounds like. It just operates like a, ho a hotel. I give the example of the condos in Miami. You go up, they have valet parking. You go in and they hand you a key card to every single unit in that condo tell that is like a hotel it's just a condominium and not you know your marriott a non-warrantable condo it might have a front desk that's fine i have a little lobby but they're not handing out key cards to you you have to you know they're giving you the code to the door that's your last four-year phone number or something like that which is common 
Um, so keep that in mind. And if you're unsure, you know, always send us the address and we can let you know pretty quickly if it's a true condo tell or non-warrantable. So your non-warrantable condos are mostly going to be in those tourist areas for those reasons. Smoky Mountains, Panhandle. Panhandle's big with those condos. Um, and the only reason that they are most of the time non-warrantable is because there are a lot of investment units and second home units. Um, but then warrantable, it's kind of like in your primary residence neighborhood. It's not a tourist area. And those are more so for your primary residences. Gotcha. So you're more likely like Starkville, Mississippi, where I'm from. Any condo buildings there, people are probably living in, not a lot of tourism coming in. So those are probably going to be warrantable because they're going to be mostly people living there. But if you're trying to buy a condo in Panama City Beach, most of those are going to be second home and investment properties. Not a lot of people living in condo buildings. So there are a few, but not as many living right. in condo buildings in Panama City. Got it. Got it. And so I, I do hear a lot of people use that word condo tell interchangeably with non-warrantable condos. So I really wanted to you to highlight the difference because there is a difference just because it's a high rise condo building that's non-warrantable does not make it a condo tell. So, um, and while you cannot get conventional financing on a non-warrantable condo, it's not as difficult to get financing at all on a uh, non-warrantable condo as it is a condo tell. So Brenna, what kind of financing can you get on a non-warrantable condo? Just basically non-QM or non-qualified mortgage, which that means like a DSCR loan. We do condos all the time with those and they're fine. They go through like a normal purchase. Yeah. So I made this mistake when I first started. Luke and I were under contract on a condo in Destin that was really a great price. And I, I kick myself every day over this, every time I drive by that building. And uh, we just went to our the normal mortgage broker that we always went to for a conventional loan. We didn't really even know there was a different kind. And we got halfway through the process and they said, oh, this condo isn't warrantable. It's not financeable. And so we thought it meant not being newbies. We thought it meant it's not financeable at all. We thought all these people who own condos in the entire the coast of Florida all the way around all those zillions of people were paying cash for condos. And we were like, oh man, I guess we're just not high rollers and everybody else is a high roller is paying condos. No, that is not true. You can get a portfolio loan, which is that non-QM that Brenda, Brenda mentioned, non-QM portfolio loan or a commercial loan, like call the local banks, call the local credit unions that if you can't get, uh, like if your typical, if your usual mortgage broker that you use can't do it, call the local guys. A lot of them will have dealt with this really often if they live in an area like, Gulf Shores, Alabama, or Destin, Florida, or Miami, places that have a lot of condos, they'll typically have products to help you get past that. So don't be like me and blow a really good deal because you're new and you didn't look into it further and you thought everybody was just paying cash for everything because that everyone paying cash for everything except for you is usually not the truth. That's <laughs> not the answer. So uh, that was my dummy move and don't y'all don't have to do that. So I told you that story so you don't have to be a dummy like me. So, all right. Enough about condos. Last question. And then I promise I'm not going to come up with anything else last minute. Uh, what is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset? Oh, that's hard to pick one. But I guess my favorite one, I guess, would have to be Good to Great. You know, it's it Good to Great by, um, what is it? Jim Collins. Collins. And he, you know, it's not just, a, it's talking about companies going from good to great, but it also gives you the mindset of how you can become, you know, you might be good at investing or good at whatever your passion is, but how do you get that 
and become great at it. And so I really like that book. Can I mention another book? Yeah, you can, you can okay. mention several if you would like. <laughs> I like Who Not How as well, because when you get really busy, you know, you can't do it all. You know, I, had, I reached a point in my lending career that I had so, so many loans and I was like, okay, either I'm going to have to get help or my, you know, way I do these loans and how I communicate with my customers are going to decrease and it's not going to be as good. So who can I get to help me so I can further grow my business? And so I really like that book as well. That's a good one. They gave that one to us as our graduation present uh, when I got my MBA at Belmont. They gave us that book signed by everybody else that went to grad school with me, of which I still speak to exactly one person. Um, <laughs> they tell you get your MBA, getting your MBA is like the greatest net source of networking ever. And it was not that for me. I just like... <laughs> I just like school. <laughs> anyway, um, thanks so much, Brenna, for coming. Uh, if the listeners want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Uh, you can go to our website, www.mortgage.shop. Um, and you can in, you can email me with any questions you have at info at mortgageshop.co. Or you can join one of our calls. You know, I have a call every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern going over frequently asked questions for these loan products that we're talking about. It's very exhilarating. <laughs> you don't want to miss it. Um, but it does get you ahead of your competition um, in the aspect of learning and again, educating yourself as buyers and investors. And what's the link for your weekly Q&A on this stuff? Oh yeah, it's um, www.mortgageshopprep.com mortgageshopprep.com. So basically you can sit in on a podcast with Brenna basically and ask a bunch of questions. So hopefully we've answered some things for you. If not, we will have a part two. Uh, just send me an email. And Brenna, thanks so much for coming and we'll catch you next time.